All right, hey, there are a lot of questions in the world, right? You got questions? Kids ask some of the best questions. I remember one week, this is back when I was the youth pastor here, and uh, I was sitting in the second row right over here, and sitting in front of me was the pastor and his wife, Pastor Paul and his wife, And I was sitting in the second row, and I've got my five- or six-year-old granddaughter, Adriana, sitting next to me. And church is going on, worship's going on, there's a quiet moment, and all of a sudden Adriana says, Grandpa, are you the boss of this church? (laughs) A little kid to his eight-month pregnant mother Mama, did you swallow a baby? That's a logical question. I mean, so it looks like. Another kid says, Dad, why do you have a beard under your arms? One child looks at the night sky and asks his mom if it's dark in heaven. It's a great question. Another wondered if Jesus had a brain. Might have been watching Wizard of Oz. I don't know. A five-year-old boy asked, Mom, my belly hurts. Am I pregnant? (laughs) Another kid asked his grandpa, In the old days, was everything black and white? (laughs) Must watch me TV. (laughs) A child looks into the oven. The impact of modern technology. A child looks into the oven and asks, Are the cookies loading? (laughs) Why do I have two eyes and I only see one thing? That's a good question. How about this question? If poison is past the expiration date, is it more poisonous or no longer poisonous? (laughs) That's a good question. Do twins ever realize that one of them was unplanned? (laughs) How did people make the first tools if they didn't have any tools? How is it that one, this, see this one, this is a good question, this one puzzles me. How is it that one careless spark can start a forest fire, but it takes a whole box of matches to start a campfire? <laughs> As I was preparing this, I, I, and I read this question, I spent a day being troubled by it. How do I know that I'm real and not just a part of someone else's dream? Ponder that for a while. If corn oil comes from corn and vegetable oil comes from vegetables, where does baby oil come from? (laughs) Does pushing the elevator button more than once make it come any faster? If Jimmy cracks corn and no one cares, why is there a song about it? (laughs) I I need answers. There's a little boy in second grade who had never seen his teacher outside of school before. When his family bumped into her at the grocery store one evening, he yelled, Mom, who let her out? (laughs) Those are good questions. And and Jesus asked some, some fascinating questions. It's a great study, the questions Jesus asked during his life on earth. As a 12 year old boy, you have to picture the story. They're at the temple for the feast, and the family starts heading back home. And, you know, it's not like travel today. It's the Ankle Express. They get a day's journey, a day's journey, and they realize Jesus isn't with them. 12-year-old son. Their 12-year-old son isn't with them. 
So now they have to go another day's journey back. There's Jesus in the temple, and I'm sure Joseph and Mary say, what are you doing? And Jesus, as he often did, answers a question with a question. He says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? It's like, what? (laughs) He once asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? To his sleeping inner circle of friends, could you not watch with me one hour? He says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? To Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Tough questions. But one question stands out. It was asked amid the howling wind atop a hill called Calvary. During the strange midday gloom, and and we thought of that this morning when the lights went out, that here we are, it's all going dark. It's a question so inexplicable and mysterious in one sense, and yet in another sense it answers all the questions ever asked. It's one of the seven phrases spoken from the cross by Jesus, one of the seven words of love. It's found in Matthew 27, 46. It says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These were the desperate words of Jesus Christ. Jesus was forsaken. Why? It's a good question. We're talking about questions, right? The short answer in the moment, for the moment, in that moment, in question is that Jesus was taking upon himself the sin of the world. The substitutionary process was taking place and he was experiencing something that he had never, ever experienced before. He was estranged from his father. Up until that point, they had always experienced Perfect harmony within the Holy Trinity. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. The members of the Godhead always have the same mission. They are always on the same page. Let us make man in our image, they said during the creation account. Let us go down and confound their language. They reasoned as they watched mankind build an idolatrous tower. Who will go for us? They asked the prophet Isaiah. One God, eternally existent in three persons, always in perfect union. For there are three that bear record in heaven, 1 John 5 says, the Father, the Word, which is Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. In praying for his disciples, Jesus says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are are one. The members of the Godhead are in perfect harmony. They always have been. There was only one blip on the screen. There was but one moment in time when Jesus felt alone. There was one moment in time when Jesus 
felt abandoned. There was only one moment in time when Jesus was God forsaken. It was here on the cross as recorded in Matthew 27. Death is really separation. When you die physically, your body is separated from your soul. When you die spiritually, your spirit is separated from God. And that's what Jesus was experiencing here. The reason he experienced this separation was sin. It was your sin and my sin. Isaiah, who had prophesied about the Messiah in chapter 53 of the book that bears his name, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded. He was wounded. Why? For our transgressions. He was bruised. Why? For our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, the Bible says, we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Our chastisement was upon him. According to Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. He was made a, a sin offering. He died in our place. He died on our account that He might bring us to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The forsakenness of Jesus was the manifestation of God's aversion to sin, His abhorrence of sin, His outright incompatibility with sin. It was the manifestation of a nature incapable of being in the presence of sin without something catastrophic happening to someone. In those awful moments, as evil men tortured the Savior of the world, Jesus expressed His feelings of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? There's some twisted comfort and maybe some understanding as we begin to realize that in His darkest hour, Jesus felt that way too. In that moment, the sins of all mankind were placed upon the Son of God. The weight of the world was upon His shoulders. And Jesus, for a time, felt something that He had never felt before. A separation from His Father. The loss of community and harmony within the Godhead. And it was in this instant, in, in this moment, that He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It's the substitutionary principle. It's one of the major themes of the Bible. It was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. It plays out initially in one of the most dramatic and I think underrated, if you will, scriptures of the Bible, Genesis 3.21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins 
and clothed them. Adam and Eve had had tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. That was the beginning of religion. Religion is man's attempt to reach God, but, but that didn't deal with the heart of the issue. That didn't deal with the sin issue. Religion never does. That's where most of us are even today. We, we try to cover our sin with, with good works, with acts of charity, even church attendance. But apart from relationship with Jesus, that's just religion. Religion cannot atone for our sin. We must deal with the sin issue. It's like, it's like stealing a car and then deciding from that point on that you're going to try to be good. There's still a matter of the law you broke and the outstanding warrant for your arrest. There's a penalty to pay. There's atonement to be made. God looked at Adam and Eve's feeble effort at covering their sin and he knew it wasn't good enough. And this is where he instituted the substitutionary principle that would offer hope for all mankind. And this is how he would reach the fallen human race. By killing an animal to cover their nakedness, God began to paint a picture of what it would take to bring mankind back into proper relationship with him, to make it right and to fulfill the righteousness of the law. He continued in that theme with his chosen people, Israel. God established his holiness through the law. And he demonstrated their inability to achieve that holiness by keeping the law. They couldn't do it. God then granted them a substitute to pay the price for their sin in the form of the blood sacrifices. Numbers 29, and, and I could have picked any of a, a host of scriptures. Numbers 29, 2, you shall offer a burnt offering for a sweet savor unto the Lord, and one young bullock, one ram, seven lambs of the first year without blemish. Verse 5, and one kid of the goats for a sin offering to make atonement for you. The innocent for the guilty. The just for the unjust. The blood of animal sacrifices flowed freely in the Old Testament. By sacrificing an innocent animal according to God's specifications, man could have his sins forgiven, and enter again into the favor of God. The animal died in the sinner's place, allowing the sinner to go free, reconciled to God. Leviticus 16 tells of the scapegoat upon which the elders of Israel would place their hands, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to the goat. The goat was then released into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the people. It was all a type and a shadow of the coming Messiah who would be the scapegoat for you and for me. The theme of substitution is found throughout the Old Testament as a precursor to the coming of Jesus Christ. The Passover feast of Exodus 12 clearly featured a substitute. God gives implicit instruction to His people to prepare 
for the death angel, the coming death angel of the Lord who would kill the firstborn male of every family as judgment upon the nation of Egypt. The only way to escape judgment was to take a perfect male lamb, to kill it, apply the blood on the doorposts of the houses. The verse in Exodus 12 says, it's verse 13, it says, The blood shall be to you as a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. That Passover lamb, that lamb without blemish, was a substitute for every sinner who would believe it enough to accept it and believe it enough to apply it. God carried that theme of substitution into the New Testament. There it was fulfilled in Jesus. God had set the stage so that mankind would understand exactly what Jesus came to do. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now think about this. He became sin that we would become the righteousness of God in him. God's perfect lamb took the sins of the world upon himself, laid down his life, and died in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The only acceptable sacrifice for sin is a perfect offering. Only Jesus, the perfect God-man, fits the requirement. And he laid down his life, his life, for ours, willingly. No man taketh it from me, says in John 10, 18, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. The value of the ancient sacrifices was that the animal was a substitute for a human being's sin and that it pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All things are by law purged with blood, Hebrews 9 says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now many mistakenly assume that since Jesus died for the sins of the world, then everybody goes to heaven. This is incorrect. The substitutionary death of Christ must be personally applied to the heart in the same way the blood of the Passover had to be personally applied to the doorpost. Before we can become the righteousness of God in Him, we must exchange our sinful nature for His holy nature. And we do that by receiving Him by faith. As many as received Him, John 1.12 says, to them... He gave the power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on His name. As the sin of the world was laid upon Jesus, 
He was God forsaken. And yet in some strange dichotomy, some strange juxtaposition, some strange irony, God was never more pleased with Jesus than in this darkest of hours. God was never more pleased with Jesus than in that moment Jesus felt as though his father had abandoned him. It was all foretold in a messianic psalm, Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Ever felt that way? And why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you don't hear me. And in the night season, I am not silent, but thou art holy. O thou that inhabits the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you did deliver them. They cried unto you and they were delivered. They trusted in you and they were not confounded. Could it be that when we are faithful, even in our darkest hours, that God is never more pleased with us? Could it be that when we feel at our lowest, when nothing is going our way, could it be that God is, is never more pleased with us than He is in that moment? Job lost everything, and yet God was pleased with how he was faithful in his walk anyway. David was on the run. King Saul in hot pursuit. David had every opportunity to take revenge on Saul. But he would not stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. God was pleased with David in his desperate hours. The Israelites were caught between the Red Sea and the Philistine army bearing down on them. And God was pleased with their step of faith onto the dry riverbed. Daniel spent a night in the lion's den with a hungry lion. And God was well pleased with him too. And God was pleased with Jesus in his darkest hour. Yes, he was forsaken because the sin of the world was imposed upon him, but his father was never more pleased. I ask you this morning, how about you in your dark hour? Do you abandon God when it feels like God has abandoned you? Or do you stay faithful even when you feel forsaken? Listen, we are free to pray like Jesus prayed. We can pour out to God our deepest feelings as a cry for help. We can be honest about how we feel. And the good news is Jesus identifies with our deepest feelings. Jesus has been there. He felt forsaken too. And now he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. We're not alone. Feeling forsaken is not the same as being forsaken. It's in those times, it's in those dark hours that you and I have to trust the character of God. We have to believe in those moments that He is who He says He is. And that takes faith. And faith is a journey. Just remember this. He died for you. That's who he is. He was forsaken 
for you so that you could be reconciled unto God. The question is, a lot of questions today, right? Do you believe it enough to accept it? And do you believe it enough to apply it? It all goes back to that Passover. They're in the land of Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is, is always a picture of the world, right? So here we are in the midst of the world. And we know from Scripture that a judgment is coming. There's a, there's a judgment angel coming. And the instruction is clear from the beginning of this book, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, where God killed an animal, skinned it, and clothed Adam and Eve with it from from Genesis 3.21, the first sin happens in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.21, the substitutionary principle is applied by God. All the Old Testament sacrifices, and you say all these Old Testament books, Leviticus, Numbers, they're boring because over and over, this sacrifice, that sacrifice, for this sin, this sacrifice, for the sacrifice of the people, for the sin of the people, this sacrifice, for the sin of the priest, this sacrifice, and you say it's boring, but it's all preparing you and me for the understanding that there's a judgment coming. And there's only one way out of that judgment, and it's the same old story. You have to believe what God says enough to accept it and enough to apply it. It wasn't good enough that that provision was made for the Passover. You had to actually apply it to your doorpost. And then it says in Exodus 12, when I see the blood, I will pass over. The people in those houses weren't necessarily any better than the people in the other houses. But they believed it enough to accept it. And they believed him enough to apply it. So today, it's not about you being any better than the people in the world, Egypt. It's not about you being any better than them. It's about you believing it enough to accept it. And believing it enough apply it. And when he sees the blood, he will pass over. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that's always thought in terms of, I'm good, I'm a good person, I, I go to church, I'm religious. But Lord, we realize very quickly we fall short. The one thing that sets us apart is the fact that we're believers. Huh? To as many as believe on His name. So we know and we understand that our only hope of righteousness is in Him. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Hmm. Substitutionary principle. So, Lord, we receive that from you today. Lord, forgive us for trying to cover our sin with fig leaves, for trying to be better, for trying to...
turn over a new leaf, trying to establish our own righteousness. Lord, the only hope we have of righteousness is found in you. The work of the cross. You were God forsaken because of us. So Lord, we just received that from you this morning by faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. If we will but believe. So Lord, we believe on you this morning. In Jesus' name. Go ahead and stand and join us in worship. You give life. You are love. Bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only give life you give life you are love you bring light the darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is Lord, so we're just going to turn it right back around and praise you. 